and welcome to the Prepared Parent Podcast, the podcast that wants to make your parenting life easier and help you understand your child through the science of childhood development and the Montessori method. Today I am reviewing Maria Montessori's book, From Childhood to Adolescence. So we will be talking about her plan for education beyond the zero to six age. So I really enjoy this book. Um, because it's very interesting to learn about her ideas for how high schools and colleges should be run. But she also addresses the elementary school. Um, and uh, there's a common myth, or misunderstanding rather, that is only for children, um, preschoolers, you know, from age zero to six, or even three to six. And this is wrong. Um, she had an idea of how she wanted to educate um, all of the ages. So, let's begin. She breaks down different age ranges in this book. The first group is from birth to age 7, subdivided into from years 0 to 2, years 3 to 5, and years 6 to 7. She doesn't really talk about those in this book. Rather, she suggests that you go read Secret of Childhood and Discovery of the Child for ages 0 to 7. But what she does mention is that it requires, this age requires a limited environment, hands-on concrete materials. They're focusing on their motor, gross motor, fine motor, sensorial. They want to be independent. They're always asking what, and they can observe one thing at a time. Each stage requires different methods. So what she focuses a lot on this book is age 7 through 12, the elementary school age. Now she does have another book um, that you can reference for this age, which is the Montessori Elementary Material and also to educate the human potential. So if you'd like to read some more books for ages 7 to 12, check those out. You can also check this one. Now, it should be noted that about half the book is just her going on and on about science stuff. And she does this to illustrate how she intends you to educate children this age. So if you think that would be helpful, you can read it. Personally, while I read it and even followed it, I just found it to be unnecessary and long. So I did uh, skim through that half of the book because the exact lesson wasn't the point. And it isn't her point, it's an example. There's examples to get her point across. So just be aware if you do read this book, that is there. But um, so here's some basic thoughts on that she has given about ages 7 through 12. There are two key things. Um, the first is that we should be, they will be awakening their moral sense. Um, they begin to wonder if what they have done is right or wrong, well or, you know, good or bad. Um, they begin to apply judgments to things. Whereas before, you know, younger children, they'll just do it and that's it. They don't really think about, you know, how it might affect other people. And we know this is true from a childhood development standpoint. Um, we talked about imagination last week. Uh, children don't gain the ability to think uh, 
expansively in a way that helps them understand others until closer to the ages of um, six and seven. Seven, I think, is what it was. And so, you know, sometimes we get mad at our young children for, you know, that hurt them. Why would you do that? But they don't really think that way. They're so only, they're, they're very aware of only themselves. And even for a long time, they rely on the adult uh, to, to be an extension of themselves. That's why they look to the adults to show them how they should be feeling and to regulate their emotions and how your responses can really dictate what they like and don't like in a lot of ways. Um, so when they hit others, they don't really think about that it hurts them. They might know that it hurts them. They might feel bad about it, but they don't really imagine it the same way that an older child does. An older child knows before they act, you know, if I act this way, it might cause them to feel that way. And they're not always going to do that. Sometimes they'll act impulsively and then realize it afterwards. Whereas a younger child will like, oh, I see that they are being sad. I will give them a hug. They don't really realize, oh, I made them sad when I hit them in the same way that an older child does. So yes, uh, ages 7 to 12 begins to awaken to their moral sense. Um, the second thing, though, is that, they're again, with their imagination, it expands. And they become interested in everything. A 0 to 7-year-old asks why. A seven, sorry, a zero to seven year old asks what? A seven to 12 year old asks why? They just want to know everything. And you still need to temper yourself with, you know, simple explanations and simple statements. But they just, they're so curious. Oh, seven to 12 is so curious. They want to learn about everything. They are easily captured and influenced by, you know, movies they see on YouTube. And they want to do the things and be the things. And they believe in themselves and their ability to do things. It's really quite amazing. Um, so we really, I really enjoy this age personally. In a lot of ways, this age is, is difficult. Because as they develop that moral sense, they develop their social sense. You know, how should I behave socially? And so this age group, I think, really does require a lot of social lessons. And while she doesn't, Maria Montessori doesn't talk about that in this book, we do know that it is a strong aspect of all of her programs to educate the whole child and to focus on grace and courtesy. You know, manners are important. Social graces are important. So undoubtedly, you should include this in your curriculum for this age group. But she does not mention it specifically in this book. Um... Here is a list of topics that she should, that, excuse me, that she suggests for this age group. This is an idea. It's not inclusive or exclusive. It's just here are some she mentioned. I'm sure she did not mean it to be exclusive list. So you can certainly teach them other things as well. But she mentions they should be given their own money so they begin to understand it. This will also help them begin to understand the economy at large. You know, when you give that money to the storekeeper, the storekeeper uses the money here and it travels through all these pockets. Eventually it makes its way back to you. Um, 
They'll have social considerations as they consider the social structure around them. They're interested in justice, you know, again, that moral code. Um, she does mention that it's very easy to convolute a sense of justice. So in our adult society, in our laws, we often have this like self-justice, like everything, you know, I need my justice. It's all about me. But that's not the same as, you know, restorative justice or fairness or equity. I think this was really her point is that sometimes we can teach justice in a way that's all about equality. You know, everyone gets one piece of pie rather than equity. Baby doesn't eat pie. He might not want one. Whereas... You know, maybe the starving man deserves to because he needs the calories or whatever. That's equity. So she really talks about how we need to be careful at this age to teach them the value of equity instead of equality when we talk about justice. So there was um, a trending video a while back about a school teacher that teaches her elementary school students equity. And she just does this by... I probably won't find the link, so I'll share it really quickly. She has a pack of Band-Aids. She asks the students, you know, have you ever hurt yourself on your elbow? And most of the kids raise their hands, and she picks one and says, here's a Band-Aid for your elbow. Who has ever hit their head? Most of the students raise their hands. She picks one and says, here's a Band-Aid for your elbow. Who's ever hurt their knee? Here's a Band-Aid for your elbow. You know, at this point, all the students are confused, and then she stops and says, Equality is giving everyone the same thing. Equity is giving people what they need. You know, most of you don't even need a band-aid, but if you do hurt your elbow, you deserve a band-aid for your elbow. And if you hit your head, you deserve a band-aid for your head. And she uses this as an example to explain why, you know, some of her um, students with needs, uh, different needs, deserve different treatments. So, an ADHD student might benefit from a fidget spinner. A another student might benefit from having uh, an aide in the classroom with them. Whatever, what have you. So I really think that really shows the difference between equity and justice. Continuing on this list, Maria Montessori also recommended teaching them about the justice system, about philosophy, um, moral codes. Um, having extensive physical exercise with purpose, so sports, um, hiking, um, teaching them personal hygiene. This is really important. Um, at this point, children are able to grasp, again, because of their explosion into imagination, symbolic things and abstract things. So you may teach them that way with symbolic and ab symbolic stories um, because they'll be able to make the comparison. They'll understand the metaphors. She talks about teaching them survival skills, mostly because they appeal to this age, but also because in general, the human spirit is fortified by needing to feel a sense of independence and having those survival skills just really helps one feel competent and self-dependent. Um, and just for some reason, kids this age are really interested in it. Like, Survivor? I don't know. They still make that? Everyone was way into that show at that age, and I know they still make shows like it. Anyway, that's a tangent. She talks about phenology, so that's observing the weather, specifically weather cycles. 
Um, she talks about how they benefit studying nature, um, how we should introduce history, geography, and culture, as in arts, sciences, etc. Um, and we need to introduce all the sciences, art, art, music, etc. for culture. I think I might have misspoken. As always, though, her method is child-led. You shouldn't go to the store and buy a bunch of curriculum and sit down and walk your kid through the curriculum. Because, one, children need to learn firsthand on their own through their own observations. So field trips are really great for this age. She talks about how this age they need an expanded environment to study the world around them, society around them, and the nature around them, and that's how they will learn. So lots of field trips, lots of observing, lots of doing. The Montessori method is all about doing as you learn. Um, but secondly, it's, it's child-led. So you certainly should introduce history, but if you introduce it and they have no interest, you don't need to force it. There's a chance they come back later with interest. Um, the idea, the key idea, especially at this age, is to introduce it. She talks a lot about planting the seeds. So at this age, because their imagination captures them so, you want to introduce each subject in a way that captures the imagination. And by doing this, you're planting seeds. And you plant those seeds so that in the future, they'll come back to it and grow them, the ones that interest them. So her teaching method for this age is to introduce um, a set of things. I believe I have a quote here. Here is an essential characteristic of education. To teach details is to bring confusion. To establish the relationship between things is to bring knowledge. So, her, one of her examples in the book, she has a whole chapter about water. If you go to your child and you just say, these are the water currents in the ocean, or, yeah, and they control the weather, and that's all you give them, what does that mean? How does that happen? Why does that happen? What causes it? Like, there's so many questions that are left. So rather than memorizing random facts, you say to the child, we are going to learn about the water cycle. And you won't even limit yourself to the water cycle because the rain goes up in the sky. I'm sorry, that water evaporates into the sky. It forms clouds. The clouds make rain. The rain falls into the rivers. The rivers carry all kinds of minerals into the ocean. So how come the ocean is always salty and contains the same content? Where did all the minerals go? Well, all of the minerals get gathered up by the sea and like the uh, clams and things with shells and they build them into shells and you know so all the minerals are deposited here and then they're taken over here where they get built into shells and eventually they get built into islands and you go through many cycles so I read a tip once that was basically you know start anywhere and continue following as your interest leads you because it will all lead you back to the beginning so when you are teaching children this age, it is important to introduce the whole topic um, to capture their imagination. So make it a story. At this age, stories are powerful, you know. Um, and so she, this is where she, she doesn't talk about it in this book. But for this age range, she talks a lot about 
The Five Cosmic Lessons, and I will leave a link for that in the description. I will not be addressing it today as it wasn't in the book. Um, but essentially, to summarize, age 7 to 12, they have an explosion into imagination. This leads them to moral considerations of their own behavior and how it affects others and what is and is not appropriate. This leads them into, I mean, fun things like fairy tales, but also into wanting to know about everything. And you can teach them the best by capturing their imagination, by telling them stories that lead you from one topic to the next topic that bring you to a whole. So you may introduce, you know, the clouds are in the sky, and then you might, you know, why are there so many different clouds? How does that happen? How do the air currents shape that? How does that create weather? And you ask questions and you explore and you tell stories that are cyclical in nature that teach everything you see. And you let them explore it themselves. Um, she's very big about providing materials because learning, to learn you need to balance doing and thinking. If you only think you get lost in your mind and you become a person who's incapable of action. Whereas if all you do is do without thinking, well, that causes problems in its own right. So doing and thinking go hand in hand, and that's why the materials are so important. Um, and you can learn about some of those in the Montessori Elementary Material book. So another quote from her about schools in general to consider the school as the place where instruction is given is one point of view, but to consider the school as a preparation for life is another. In the latter case, the school must satisfy all the needs of life. I also have a quote from her. This was the quote that began the book. I forgot to give it earlier. My vision of the future is no longer of people taking exams and proceeding on that certification from the secondary school to the university but of individuals passing from one stage of independence to a higher by means of their own activity through their own effort of will, which constitutes the inner evolution of the individual. Unquote. Now this is rather important because as she talks about the next stages, these are actually appendices to the book, but they're almost as long as the book. Um, she talks about high school and university ages. So for the high school ages, she called it Erdkinder. It's German. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. E-R-D-K-I-N-D-E-R. It means land children. So this is ages 12 to 18. So at this age, children are really trying to find their own place in society. So if we look at the four major periods of life that Maria Montessori describes. There's age zero to six, where one tries to learn what it means to be human, and they learn the skills they need to function as a human, how to cook, clean, dress, speak, read, etc. Then you have the ages seven to 12, where one thinks about how one is supposed to react, you know, react to others in society. Um, and so this first half of life is one considering things in regards to oneself. So I'm learning how to be human. I'm learning how to be social. 
But in the second stage of life, and it should be noted she never describes it this way, it is rather something that I have concluded through my studies of her work. Um, the second stage of life, age 12 to 18, um, she taught, you know, it's the, an individual, you know, how, what is my place in society? How do I become a functioning adult? You know, what, how do I earn money and become independent? You know, and the last stage, 18 through, she says 21 in this book, but it's reasonable to conclude age 24, um, because each of these developmental periods lasts about six years, and it takes about seven years to master a skill. So from 18 to 24, you know, how do I, you know, better society? So, you know, 12 to 18, how do I become a man in regards to society? How do I become a human in regards to society? And 18 to 21, how do I socialize as society? How do I improve society? So in the second half, we're talking about oneself in regards to the greater whole. We are finding our place in the whole world. And so the first stage and the third stage, zero to six and 12 to 18, mirror each other. It's one becoming competent in oneself and becoming independent in, in needed skills. But the first one is in regards to oneself and the second one is in regards to society. Whereas the second and fourth stage mirror each other, ages seven to eight, seven to 12 and 18 to 24 are very social, you know, but the first one, 12 to 18 is, sorry, excuse me, seven to 12 is, you know, how do I, I be social in an appropriate way in regards to those around me. Whereas 18 to 24 is, you know, me in regards to society. How do I be social in a way that improves society? How do I pull us together as a community? And so for these older ages, you often see children trying to, or adults, teenagers, humans, trying to improve the world around them and assessing culture and society, what we do right and wrong and how we can make it better. Um, and I just find that really fascinating. So I was sharing that with you. Back to the book. Um, the key changes she teaches about in high school that she would see, yes, it's still important to teach them history and the sciences and whatever, but it's also important to teach them practical skills and to give them the opportunity to try different skills. So the key thing in her education reform is that in the elementary school, you are introducing the seeds of everything and the seeds of the sciences. So as they age and you be continue teaching those, they have an interest in them and they understand some element of them. So 7 to 12 is all about science, um, but also culture, arts and music and so on. So what she recommends for 12 to 18, um, the change she would make is she would essentially, her plan would be to send children to a boarding school in the country where it is basically a safe environment where the teachers can control the things as needed because, you know, teenagers aren't completely mature yet. Um, 
their brains are being completely rewired. They can't focus on things. They, teenagers have a difficulty um, sometimes understanding how their actions will create consequences because they're still getting experience in that regard and they don't always know, understand how far-reaching they can be. And so it's hard for them to make wise decisions sometimes. So we still need to control the environment so that we can assist them as necessary, um, mostly so they don't make irreparable damage, but largely we let them make their choices and learn from them. But it still makes sense to guide them quite a bit. So in this boarding school, the children are basically creating their own society and their own economy. She wants to give them the chance to earn money, and I personally recommend if they're doing this, it should be for college or trade school or what have you, future savings. But um, she recommends they have this private economy where they can earn money because essentially they're trying to find their place in society. And if we put them in real society without guidance, that might cause problems. So she recommended a boarding school so that you can have guidance. I'll leave my own opinions out of this. I'll just explain hers for the moment. Um, and so basically they're running a school, but the school doubles as a hotel and the students are in charge of the managerial work and the hostessing work and the housekeeping work. And they also run a garden or farm where they grow the vegetables and then they go and they sell them in a market and they learn how, you know, the economy works and how to earn money and how, what the work that it takes and so on. Basically, they are creating their own mini city where they can choose any role they want to and practice it. And I think this is so important because she talks a lot about how you shouldn't, this isn't trade school. We're not giving them apprenticeships. Essentially what we're doing um, is just giving them the opportunity to try lots of things. One work is a break from another work, she says. And by doing this, we let our children explore their way in society. And I absolutely love this because the most aggravating thing for me as a high school student back in the day was every time I wanted to try something new like this, you know, get a job or try to change the school because it was frustrating how it was set up, it was not helpful or what have you, I was always told, oh, you can figure that kind of thing out when you're in college. You can do it later. But the developmental stage is to do it from ages 12 to 18. All teenagers are searching for that. They're trying on different personalities and jobs and behaviors because they're trying to figure out how they can contribute to society at large and what their personal value is. And they want to learn how they can be contributors. And so when we tell our teenagers, well, you can do it later, we're stunting their development. We are. I think there are many reasons for the rise in depression and anxiety, but I think this is one of them. These days, so many teenagers, or young adults actually, choose to spend longer and longer at school. And it's not necessarily because they're pursuing a profession. It has a lot to do with them not knowing what else to do. Having been deprived of their opportunity to find out what they want in life, they're now aimlessly continuing 
what they were told to do during that time period. And that's just, that's really sad to me. Like, that just hurts me. I'm going to cry a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I really love Maria Montessori's ideas. And I, I highly recommend reading this book, if only to get to the Erdkinder section and the university section. Um, let me continue other things she recommends. So in addition to the culture, music, art, um, let's see. Sewing, you know, practical skills that let them maintain their existence, repairing, plumbing, electricity. You know, we also teach them history, science, um, mechanics, engineering, genetics, she has a huge list that I think I will not share today. Mainly sciences, history, geography, and arts. Nothing out of the ordinary. We cover most of these topics in school already. Um, but we should equally balance them better and give them the opportunity to learn from real professionals. And by putting them in charge of their own mini-city, they're in charge of keeping it running and learning those skills and doing it right. And that responsibility is key. When we're teaching anyone, but especially children, by giving them the responsibility, we are showing that we trust them, and we're giving them the chance to learn from their own consequences. If we're in charge and responsible, and we just let them, you know, try it once and then we fix anything they broke, they didn't really learn as well from that experience. So, she has some quotes here. Quote, the essential reform is this, to put the adolescent on the road to achieving economic independence. We might call it a school of experience in the elements of social life. End quote. Um, quote. Schools as they are today are adapted neither to the needs of adolescents nor to the times in which we live. Unquote. She lived in the late 1800s to the mid-1900s, but I still feel like this applies today, which is why I shared it. Quote, the reform of the secondary school may not solve all the problems of our times, but it is certainly a necessary step. It must aim at improving the individual in order to improve society. Unquote. Um, quote, the secondary schools as they are at present constituted excuse me, the secondary schools as they are at present constituted do not concern themselves with anything but the preparation for a career, as if the social conditions of the time were still peaceful and secure. They do not take any special care for the personality of the children, nor do they give all the special physical attention that is necessary during the period of adolescence. Thus, not only do they not correspond to the social conditions of our day, but they fail to protect the principal energy on which the future depends, human energy. The power of individual personality. Young people in the secondary schools are compelled to study as a duty or a necessity. They are not working with interest nor any definite aims that could be immediately fulfilled and would give them a satisfaction and a renewed interest in continuous effort. They are directed by an external and illogical compulsion, and all their best individual energy is wasted. Adolescents and young people, almost right up to maturity, are treated like babies in the elementary schools, 
At 14 or 16, they are still subjected to the petty threat of bad marks, with which the teachers weigh up the work of boys and girls by a method that is just like that of measuring the material weight of lifeless objects and with the mechanical aid of a balance. The work is measured like inanimate matter, not judged as a product of life. And on these marks, the future of the student depends. So study becomes a heavy and crushing load that burdens the young life instead of being felt as the privilege of initiation to the knowledge that is the pride of our civilization. The young people, the men of the future, are formed into a mold of narrowness, artificiality, and egotism. What a wretched life of endless penance, a futile renunciation of their dearest aspirations. Unquote. So again, she really talks a lot about following the child. It takes all kinds of people to build this world, and everyone has their own interests and knowledge. And when we put children through school in a way that only teaches them the exact same things as one another, they fail to develop that independence, and their individuality is crushed. And so she talks a lot about how we really need to be supporting that. If we want to create adults who contribute to society in a positive way, we need to raise our children in a way that values their independence and their contributions, rather than telling them to wait until they're ready. Because by then, we've taught them to wait. That, that just teaches them to wait. And then they become adults who don't contribute to society because it is difficult to unlearn what we've been taught. It can be done. Don't get me wrong. I think sometimes people are scared of the Montessori method because they feel like, oh no, I've done it wrong and now I'm a terrible parent. Don't feel that way. You've done your best as a parent. And you can still do better. And it's a skill that we practice. And you're going to mess up as a parent. You're not, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We will mess up. But when our children grow up, they are responsible for themselves and they can correct those things or choose to. That doesn't mean they always will, of course. So we do want to do our best as parents. And I, I really want you to understand that your role as a parent is irreplaceable. You set them up for life with everything you teach them and you develop their expectations of the world around them. And you can do so much for them. So I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast to learn how to do it in your best way. Um, but also, you probably won't permanently scar them. If you're listening to this podcast, you care about your job as a parent. I think the only people that permanently scar their children are parents who are abusive and they... Uh, are usually kind of neglectful. Um, we're not going to talk about that today. Point is, you're doing a great job, parent. You're here, you're listening, you're trying. We can always do better for our children. Let's see. Quote, This conception of work implies a general principle that holds the work itself to be of greater importance than the kind of work. All work is noble. The only ignoble thing is to live without working. There is a need to realize the value of work in all its forms, whether manual or intellectual, to be called 
mate to have a sympathetic understanding of all forms of activity. Education should therefore include the two forms of work, manual and intellectual, for the same person, and thus make it understood by practical experience that these two kinds complete each other and are equally essential to a civilized existence. Quote, but the work must have a particular interpretation in this case. Unquote. She's talking about the work in high schools um, and how we are teaching them through work. Quote, the expression work for wages at once suggests a trade and implies technical training and competition. This work should instead be an exercise of utilized virtues, of supervalues, and skills acquired beyond the limits of one's own particular specialization, past or future. This conception of work implies a general principle that holds the work itself to be of greater importance than the kind of work. All work is noble. The only ignoble thing is to live without working. There is a need to realize the value of work in all its forms, whether manual or intellectual, to be called mate, to have a sympathetic understanding of all forms of activity. Education should therefore include the two forms of work, manual and intellectual, for the same person, and thus make it understood by practical experience that these two kinds complete each other and are equally essential to a civilized existence. Unquote. Basically, by living in this separate city, community, um, and trying out all the different jobs, they learn that each job is important. I've always found it a little strange as a society that we value some jobs over others when all of them are required to make society work. You know, there's a big discontent with people in the service industry right now because they get paid so poorly and treated so poorly. But I've always found this really unfair and really stupid. Like, can you go shopping if there's no one there to check you out at the register? I mean, maybe nowadays with computers, but who's going to stock the store? Who's going to, you know make the goods, who's going to repair things. And just each of these jobs make society. And so imagine how society would change if in our schools, through experience and doing each job, the children learned how those are important and how they can take any path they want and is equally as noble as another. Often we emphasize going to college to earn a better degree and a better income and do a better more important job. Like we think doctors and lawyers are better than electricians and plumbers, white collar versus blue collar. And that's just dumb. I certainly am thankful for the plumbers and electricians so that I can have plumbing and electricity <laughs> and I don't have to repair it myself when it goes wrong. They're important jobs. They're just as important as lawyers and doctors. I mean, which I also am glad to have. So yes, this is the idea um, behind this quote. Quote, it is better to treat an adolescent as if he has greater value than he actually shows, than as if he has less, and let him feel that his merits and self-respect are disregarded. Unquote. This is really true. If you, I mean, this is, this is true in general for all humans, but um, especially impactful for adolescents who are um, often adolescents self worth, feeling of self-worth and self-confidence plummets as they struggle through how do I behave and is it worthwhile? Am I worthwhile? You know, they're asking these questions. Um, in general, if you teach humans, but it's important for adolescents, if you teach them, treat them like they are more capable, as capable as you want them to be, and 
have all the values you want them to have, they will tend to behave that way. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, actually. Um, and they've got studies on this. Um, moms who believe in their children, um, you know, believe they're going to be the most successful employee or doctor or whatever, their children grow up to be successful. And there's some theories, and, the, you know, some theories are simply that because they act successful, people treat them as successful, and then they become successful. Again, self-fulfilling prophecy. And the reverse is true. Parents who believe bad things about their children have children who do bad things. Um, and one is causal, because we've also done studies with classrooms. Um, you know, they've taken classrooms and had teachers use positive and negative encouragement. And in the classrooms where teachers treated their children competently and were positive with them, the children behaved better. Whereas in classrooms where teachers treated them negatively and acted like they were all criminals or whatever, uh, they behaved a lot worse. So, yes, with people in general, treat them the way you want them to act. But especially with our children, we can really change their lives that way. And this really makes a difference for teenagers as they are wondering about their self-worth. If you treat them like they've already achieved everything they need to do to prove themselves con 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 excuse me, contributing members of society, um, they'll begin to behave that way. And that's really powerful. Um, that about sums it up for the high school. I don't know that I explained it very well. I do really encourage everyone to pick up this book. You can actually find it for free online. Uh, if you search for the PDF, you know what? I'll link it. I'll link it. Uh, and if you want to link it, and then if you just want to read the appendix for the high school section, I love it. I find it very fascinating. Um, yes. And then she talks about the university momentarily. And to sum up the university, uh, Basically, back in the day, the university, like way back in the day, medieval times, the university was considered a, a place of prestige. If you were able to enter the university, you were revered. Like these places built new technologies and spread new cultures and discovered new philosophies. And they were the breeding grounds of, of culture. Now, when Maria Montessori talks about culture, she's talking about the advancement of civilization and all the things that built civilization, um, one step on top of another. She talks a lot about how in the high school, oh yeah, this was an interesting thing. In the high school, she says that there should be a mechanical museum, basically. Essentially that the children should have access to different machines that they can use and learn to repair and take apart and put together and learn how one invention improved society. When she talks about teaching history for the high school students, she talks about how it should focus on culture, i.e. what is advanced society. Um, you know, let's, for example, vaccines. Before vaccines, everyone who got polio, many people who got polio ended up crippled for life, or they had to live in an iron lung machine to help force them to breathe because they could no longer breathe by themselves. And people died all the time from these illnesses. And then, you know, this, you know, you would teach it this way, you know, this person invented the vaccine and here's how the vaccine works. And then after we, you know, instituted a vaccine campaign and the virus was, dis you know, disappeared, 
here's the wonderful result that people no longer have to use iron lungs and no one, you know, people are not dying as often and there's less, you know, children live through childhood more often. And, you know, what a wonderful effect that had on society. And then you would move on to the next invention that built off of that and so on. Um, and so you can do this with typewriters to computers to the internet. And by teaching these things um, and learning these things, you know, we learn our history to create our future. And if our children learn these things firsthand, they can begin to improve society. They grow into adults who are able to fix and improve society. And that's wonderful. We all want to live in a better society, right? Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, Ah, yes. So that brings me back to the university. She basically says that the university, just like in the high school, we're still grading our children on bad marks and treating them like, you know, children when they're young adults. They're, you know, you're 18, you're an adult now, but we're still treating you like a child at the university. And that's silly. You know, the people who choose to go to university should do so for the sake of learning. And the university should be a place that teaches you to teach yourself so that you can continue learning. Um, quote, one who studies at the university knows already that he will have to study all his life or lose his value, unquote. And that's just kind of a true thing of life. Um, but I don't really feel like our schools teach that these days, or at least our students have learned have not learned to do that. Let's put it that way. Um, oh yeah. Anyway. So yeah, it's important, you know, universities there to teach yourself how to learn. And so she believes children, you know, pe excuse me, adults who choose to go to university, you know, if he has developed properly, what interests him now is the mission of humankind. Um, page 90, see. Quote, he should certainly not be limited to the acquisition of that knowledge which will be necessary for him in the exercise of his profession. University students are adults who will be called upon to exercise an influence upon the civilization of their times. Unquote. Quote, joy, feeling one's own value, being appreciated and loved by others, Feeling useful and capable of production are all factors of enormous value for the human soul. It is in its eventual action on these human factors, and not only in the giving of culture, that the new university should find in a renewed dignity and importance in relation to civilization." Unquote. This is true for all of her education across all the ages. You know, humans feel competent and valued when they are able to create things and prove their worth. Um, one of the struggles of being a stay-at-home mom is that you don't see your finished product for 18 years, and you just have to live day-to-day -day hoping that you've made a difference. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, this is why a lot of people in the enjoy work and find their sense of purpose in work is because they're creating things, and when they do that, they feel valued. This is just a hu this is so important for human nature, all oh, for the human soul, she says. And it is true. 
And actually, uh, pro tip, if any of you are struggling from depression or anxiety or listlessness, it's a thing that if you just make something, make anything, learn how to knit, make a card, whatever, the act of production, to have a finished thing that you can see at the end will make you feel a little bit better. And it will, you know, prompt you to do a little more and to feel a little better. And just by doing, we can improve ourselves. So sometimes we don't know what to do when we get caught up in our heads. Um, and when that happens, do anything. And just do one thing at a time and you'll find your way. Action is important. And it will help you. Uh, I hope it will improve if you're feeling sad, dear listener. More depressed. Let's see. Quote, Being active with one's own hands, having a de determined practical aim to reach, is what really gives inner discipline. When the hand perfects itself in a work chosen spontaneously, and the will to succeed is born together with the will to overcome difficulties or obstacles, it is then that something which differs from intellectual learning arises. The realization of one's own value is born in the consciousness. It is surprising to notice that even from the earliest age, man finds the greatest satisfaction in feeling independent. The, exalted, the exalting feeling of being sufficient to oneself comes as a revelation. This is undoubtedly a fundamental element of social life, because when one is completely dependent upon others, and the feeling of one's practical incapacity has become a conviction, the urge cannot arise to be of help or to seek the cooperation of others to act with one's own energy. Unquote. Yes. Just yes. When you feel like you have to depend on others to be of any use and you're incapable of behaving on your own, and you believe that with a conviction, the urge cannot arise to be of help or, or seek, you know, help with your own work. You feel like you're on your own. You feel that. I've been there. <laughs> um... She talks a little bit about how um, cooperation, spontaneous cooperation, is an important part of learning and of creating society. Um, quote, education cannot be kept within the limits of a closed room in which the student remains inert and always dependent upon the teacher while being kept separate from his fellow students. An education so limited is insufficient even for children. Unquote. And I always find this interesting because two key elements of the Montessori method are one, help me to do it myself, and two, it's always hands-on work. And this idea that when we have a teacher up there lecturing and the student just takes notes, this idea that the student is dependent upon the teacher for learning, the idea that one can be dependent on oneself for learning, that's revolutionary and, and important because that's a life skill. Um, you can grow your whole life long if you develop this skill, rather than always seeking someone else out to do it for you or to teach you to do it. Um, I just, I really believe in that. I love Maria Montessori, guys. That's why I made this podcast. <laughs> All right, moving on. Quote, 
quote, the inert child who never worked with his hands, who never had the feeling of being useful and capable of effort, who never found by experience that to live means living socially, and that to think and to create means to make use of harmony of souls, this type of child will become a selfish youth. He will be pessimistic and melancholy and will seek on the surface of vanity the compensation for a lost paradise. And thus, a lessened man, he will appear at the gates of the university. And to ask for what? To ask for a profession that will render him capable of making his home in a society in which he is a stranger and which is indifferent to him. He will enter into society in order to take part in the functioning of a civilization for which he lacks all feeling. No, it is not possible to take the human being into consideration only when he is a man. The human individual must be taken into consideration much before. He who one day wants to see before him a man must first have sought the child. To detach the various phases of life is absolutely absurd. Unquote. Again, when we take our teenagers and say, no, you can when you're an adult, but you can't right now. And then they become an adult. And at this point, they have no interest in the world around them, in their society. They don't know anyone or care about it. And they want to get a job just to support themselves, which is important, but not in a way that supports society at all. That's kind of sad. We can do better, guys. We can do better. Quote, the adult is the result of a child. Every adult is the achievement of a grown-up child. The causes of good or of evil in the adult must all be sought in the very short period of the child's growth. Unquote. Um, that concludes everything. One more note about university students. She believed they should be completely financially independent and not um, dependent on their parents. Um, if you want to understand the philosophy of Montessori learning, this is the book to go to. Like, she addresses, excuse me, she addresses how to, she addresses each age range, excepting the first one, and the ways, the phase of life they're in and the ways they want to learn and how to approach that. And she gives some really good suggestions on how to do that. But ultimately, her technique relies upon following the child understanding their interests, understanding their developmental needs, meeting those developmental needs, you know, bringing their interest, you know, expanding their interests. Um, and by so doing, we educate the whole human potential, the whole child, the whole human soul. And we create functional, competent, happy adults and children the other reason I make this podcast is so that all of your children can have a happier and easier time. Uh, and I hope this podcast helps you do that for them. In addition to making parenting easier, sometimes we fight against our children's development, and that's just problematic. So I really, I really just want to educate everyone about how to understand their children so that everyone's lives are easier and we can create a better tomorrow. I love Maria Montessori because she's so visionary that way. Anyway, so her, yeah, her method is help me to do it myself, follow the child. And so if you really want to understand where she's coming from and what she believes, read this book. Because, yeah, she talks about how we can't 
separate the child from the teenager from the adult. These are not separate. You're not a separate individual when you, when you turn a different age. You've always been the same individual and you need that same individual support. And, you know, teach your children with the end in mind from the beginning and you will create an adult when they turn 18 who knows how to adult. You know, I, th- I find it sad that the millennials have had to invent the phrase adulting because we were raised in a way that meant we didn't know how to be adults when we became adults. Let's remember that our children will be adults and teach them how to be adults. Teach them the whole human, the whole person from the beginning. I love this book. Anyway, I love this book. If you want to skip all the science-y example stuff that I mentioned, you can definitely do that. There's like three or four chapters. You can skip all of those without missing much. Um, so if you just want to read about the philosophy for each of the age is beyond zero to six, this is the book to read. Um, and again, this book is called From Childhood to Adolescence. Um, I will leave a link so you can read it online in the notes. I think there was something else I was going to link you to, but at this point I have forgotten. Oh, I was going to give a link to the, um, the great, the five great lessons or the Cosmo lessons. Um, if you do have children ages six to 12 and you want to continue the Montessori method with them, that's kind of more of like materials based curriculum based stuff that will be helpful to you. Um, thank you for listening. I hope you didn't mind all of my tangents and babbling today. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Please, please, please share it with your friends. Um, I want to help as many people as I can. Uh, currently I am not monetizing this, so it really is just because I really want to help people. So please, please, please share it with everyone. Just that would be nice. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day.